Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, so in the first uh, service, this worked fine, but I didn't have my notes. Now I've got my notes, so we're working with it. Um, today is St. Patrick's Day, and I know that there are people that have green on, and we will get to St. Patrick's in a, just a few more minutes during this uh, talk that I'm giving. But I want to get something straight out. St. Patrick's Day is a day to celebrate. It always occurs in Lent, and there's always room on St. Patrick's Day to have your Irish stew, roast beef, I mean the uh, corned beef and cabbage, and uh, all the uh, things that go with it, including your potatoes and, and whatever it is. Um, but St. Patrick's has nothing to do with snakes, just so we get that out in, in front. The snakes had all been, well, they were gone at the beginning of the Ice Age, so I don't know where exactly that part of the, the legend and the myth came, and I'm not really that sure about the uh, shamrocks either. But we'll talk about St. Patrick a little bit more because there's more to him than the snake legend and the shamrock legend. What I do want to start with is um, the pact and um, Abraham's experience with God. And leading into um, the place where we are today, actually Abraham has had his experience and the Israelites under Abraham's um, leadership have uh, won several battles. The king of Salem has just come to Abraham and blessed Abraham, Melchizedek, and Abraham has given him at that point a tenth of what he had. So we've already had, um, just prior to this, a very good illustration of how much Abraham is committed to the things that God is calling him to. But there is that one thing that favor Abraham would be the father of a many and the father of a great nation and they would all come from him. Abraham talks to God again and says not to argue because that's not what it was about. Just a question. Okay, let me just put this straight out. You say I'm going to be a father of many nations but I have not had anything and any relationships so that would produce an heir and as a result um, God just really doesn't say anything explicitly at that point but what he does he takes him out and says look at all these stars if you can count them that's how many your ancestors your uh, progeny are going to be in other words so innumerous that they cannot be counted and then God proposes his promise and his pact. And so what he tells Abraham to do is to go ahead and um, get what is needed for a sacrifice. We have the turtle dove, the pigeon, and the three animals, the uh, female heifer, well, a heifer is a female, the female goat, and the ram, all of whom 
I'm told, would be three years old because that is the time when they have more life and more vitality in them. And Abraham sacrifices in obedience. He does cut them apart, not what we would consider to be a nice way to celebrate things, but that's the way that God had ordained. It has to be a blood covenant. And in fact, the, the walk that... Um, the space in between them was called a blood path. And in those days, a blood covenant is a binding covenant. Abraham gets the animals ready for sacrifice, and he waits. And he waits all the way through the day trying to keep all the, the uh, birds away from there. And at the end of the day, a deep sleep comes on Abraham and... It comes night, and a very terrifying night because what moves in between is the pot and the flame. That is God. God in such an um, extraordinary and a way of full of majesty that he consumes and he is the one that performs the covenant. Because here's the thing about that. It's because of the fact that God chose the covenant, he performs the covenant, and he seals the covenant. It's not dependent on anything that Abraham did. And essentially what God is saying is that I am capable of performing everything that I'm going to do through you and I am getting it started. That is the power that we have represented. And then we moved, by the way, I'll just digress a little bit. I was uh, researching this, and I was uh, curious about if there was any particular symbology between the pot and the flame up above it, and uh, I knew that was God walking through, but across the street from my parents, is a lives a Jewish family, a rabbi. So I went and asked the rabbi, and he said, well, here's what we call that, Becky. We call that, real religious terms, the pack between the parts. So, <laughs> and uh, just, to, just to be a little bit more in tune with my Jewish experience this week, I uh, went to the resource that he had, and I didn't get any more explanation on what the pot, the significance of the boiling pot and the flame, other than they were together. And uh, uh, so it is God, however God is expressed. But yesterday, I wanted just to get a little bit more into it, so I went to the website on Shabbat, on Saturday. That website is not operational. So that is... Uh, that is how much the Jewish do experience that. But here we come to Jesus, and we come to the Pharisees. These must be the Pharisees that like him because what they're uh, doing, they're saying, hey, we know that Herod wants to kill you, and if you're smart, you'll go ahead and leave. Jesus really doesn't walk around anything. He says, well, tell that fox and that's not anything complimentary. So Jesus essentially tells Herod what he thinks of him, and he can have that passed on. But essentially, it's you're not going to stop anything that I'm doing. The things that I have to do are all going to be get done, whether or not 
Herod or anybody else wants to interfere. Because there is something that's laid out for Jesus, and that part that is laid out for Jesus also is um, intent on compassion. And the reason I can say that is because when um, Jesus goes on and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have wanted to gather you up as a hen in her chicks, but you would not come. Now, my barnyard experience is not extraordinary, but I do have a little barnyard story, and it has to do with a chicken. Um, but essentially, I uh, was at Curcio one time, and I was part of the music team, but the people that were cooking said, we need some eggs. So it's go for an hour to get eggs, or if you go down the road there by Camp Allen, there's a sign. It's still there. It says fresh eggs, and there's a sign, an arrow pointed. So I said, I've seen that sign. Let's go see what those fresh eggs are about. So there were, several, there were three of us, and we went, and we went, and I knocked on the door. The woman comes out. Her son says, I'll take you down to the chicken coop. We'll get you some really fresh eggs. That sounded good. So we walk down, and when I get close, I see a pile of feathers, and I get a little bit closer, and there's a pile of feathers that's all attached to a chicken because the chicken is just laying flayed out with his, his legs up and his wings spread out, and I'm thinking, there's a dead chicken in here, and they really think that we want to get eggs from somewhere with a dead chicken? And about that time, my friends, who had decided to stay in the car, they yelled at me, and they said, Becky, turn around. And I looked, and here was this goose coming my direction with his wings outspread, with that head in front quacking because he was going to take me down. <laughs> so in the, in the best way that I possibly could, I turned around and addressed the goose in the meanest goose persona that I could assume at that point and squawked as loud as I could, and it apparently made the difference because he went off to the side, and I turned around to look again, and that dead chicken was not dead anymore. He was up and walking around. <laughs> <laughs> so that is my experience in the barnyard. I have never, ever seen where these hen will gather the chickens up underneath them. So... I went to the place where we go if we don't have a barnyard next to us, and that's to the Internet. And I did that yesterday, and I saw some great pictures. And one of them that struck me was this mother hen, and her front is all pooched out because something's underneath her. And the only thing you see underneath her is 12 legs, as if they're supporting their mother. And she is just as calm as anything because she is protecting them, protecting them in, cap, in compassion. And then there's another picture that was even better because the, the chickens apparently don't outgrow their mother very soon. And this mother hen has her wings spread out, and the chickens are about half the size of her, so you see some longer legs underneath hers, but no heads, and she is standing out in the rain that is pelting down protecting her chickens, her, her chicks from the weather. And that is the image that Jesus is using us to show his desire to have a relationship, a relationship that's based on compassion. And that is where we go 
now, if y'all go with me, to St. Patrick. Because St. Patrick, um, he was born in the north part of Great Britain. And when he was six years old, his, well, he was taken into slavery and taken over to Ireland. And he was a, um, he was a shepherd, and he was in slavery there for five years. And somebody asked him how this all happened, and he, was, he had had a uh, falling out. Actually, he was 16. I take that back. He was 16 when he went out over there, and he said that he just had, he thought it was punishment from God. But his way back was, he said that he prayed every day, he prayed 100 times a day to God to be able to go back to Great Britain. It wasn't a very pleasant place to be for a 16-year-old who was left out on his own. After five years, St. Patrick had a dream. And by the way, he, he's the one that named himself St. Patrick. His real name was Maddox Sukkot. But um, he had a dream, a vision, that there was a boat. And that would take him back to Great Britain. And the only problem was any boat was 200 miles away. So St. Patrick walked 200 miles to get on the boat to take him back to Britain. And you would think that's where he'd want to stay. His, his, he was raised in a religious family. His dad was a deacon. His grandfather was a priest. His mother was a cousin of one of a St. Martin of Tours. So this is a religious family. But something kept compelling him back to the people that he had been with when he had been a slave. And he took Latin. He decided that he would go back over to Ireland. And in his, it, it, it had to be nothing except compassion that came from God. Because he went back over and he made monks and priests with people that around him that probably had been those that knew that he had been a slave. He made them monks and priests. He saw the slavery that was in Ireland and it was his very profound purpose in life. He actually eradicated slavery from Ireland and this was back in the 400s. So that is what a heart moved by compassion will do. The other thing that goes along with that comp compassion is vulnerability. And I have to say that for the last few weeks coming into Lent, God has really been talking to me about vulnerability and being vulnerable. Because when we're vulnerable, it means we cover up the fears that we have. And the fears that I have... I would rather that not everyone knows, and I could, but with that spiritual consciousness, there is something about the fear that is me, and I can pick up in the fear on other people, and you know what I want to do? I want to eradicate that, which is not right, because by being vulnerable, by being compassionate, and by knowing that we live in love, God, as he did with St. Patrick, brings him back into relationship with a very group of people that have been part of the 
people that had put him in such a terrible position. Another one that comes to mind, and this is, goes into uh, line with the vulnerability and the compassion, is um, St. Francis of Assisi, who was totally repelled by the sight of lepers, as most of us would be. But it was at a moment when he got down off of a horse, took the leper's hand and held it and kissed it, that God worked a magical and wonderful and extraordinary thing in his heart that made him the one that spent so much time and effort to bring the lepers into a loving covenant of compassion over there. I've been um, studying a little bit about John Barnier, who is the one that has started, it's called the Ark, I don't say Spanish very well, but the Ark, where this is a place that um, all over the world and people with disabilities, physical and mental disabilities, actually live in community and there it's a loving reciprocal relationship of compassion and vulnerability because when we learn to be vulnerable with everyone that's around us, then our compassion motivated by God, I can say, is the only way that it can happen, but it becomes the thing that comes up to the top, and that's what works so many, so much of what community, and going back when we see what God did when he made the blood pack and he performed it, it is all about us being in relationship, and God shows that he is vulnerable. Jesus never does go and as he was talking about the hen with the uh, chicks. The hen doesn't chase after the chicks and grab them to her. No, the hen lets the chicks come. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He doesn't bang the door in and come charging in. He's always waiting every time for us to open ourselves to him, to be vulnerable to the people around us so that he can build compassion that really takes us to the place that he has designed for all of us to live. I sense truly the call of Jesus um, is for us here at Christ Church because as we experience our own vulnerability, accept our own vulnerabilities, and learn to live into the compassion, we here at Christ Church become a place and a harbor of compassion. So that's what I leave with us today. Yes, I'm exposing my vulnerability. I ask that we all be ready to share and to truly enjoy the compassion and live in the compassion that God calls us to. Amen.